I have like zero tolerance for teach to the test kind of attitude. Like I do not care about doing it if it's like eight weeks of cracking a coding interview. Students will buy it. It will deliver the results it promises to deliver, but it feeds into a dynamic that I think is fundamentally toxic and I want it to go away. So I don't want to contribute to that. My name is Ish Babe, and I'm the founder and CEO of Virtually. And I'm Will Manon. I'm course director at Forte Academy. And this is Reshaping Education, where we discuss the future of education, including online courses, boot camps, and how the internet is changing how we learn. This week's conversation was with Jesse Farmer, the co-founder of Dev Bootcamp and Everland. We talk about his journey to founding Dev Bootcamp, the very first bootcamp, and we even get into the nitty gritty when it comes to curriculum design and managing the student experience. If you're into that, I hope you enjoy. Hey everyone, my name is Ish, founder and CEO of Virtually. I'm joined by my co-host, Will Manon, the course manager at Forte Academy. And today we have Jesse Farmer on, who was the co-founder of Dev Bootcamp, Everlane, and is now building educational experiences in different contexts. Jesse, so great to have you today. Would you be able to introduce yourself real quick? Hey, thanks for having me. Like you said, I'm Jesse. I've been building educational experiences for most of the last 10 years, starting with Dev Bootcamp in 2012. I'm comfortable saying it was the first coding bootcamp and a 30-second life history. I, you know, I grew up in a tiny town and like 1,200 people, northern Michigan, made my way out to Silicon Valley after graduating. And I've been out here ever since. And lucky to have found teaching because that's definitely my it'll be my vocation for as long as it'll have me that's amazing and, and jesse one of the reasons i'm so excited to have you is i truly believe that dev bootcamp changed the world I, I i think now looking back you can see that so much change in education has happened or come from the coding bootcamp revolution and dev bootcamp was such a big part of that story and one thing I'm really excited about today is to really dive into the history and learn everything that's come from the coding bootcamp revolution and how it's transformed education, online education, core-based courses, and all the change that we're seeing over the past few years. With that, though, before we get to that, some of that juicy content, would be great to dive into some of your history pre-dev bootcamp and sure. hear about the journey, what led you and Sharif to ultimately, I guess, putting up that Hacker News post that changed the world. Sure. Yeah, well, it did. It started with the Hacker News post. I had, when I left Everlane, I was at Everlane for the first three years. Michael and I started it together. Michael's still there. He's the CEO. And I knew this was 2011, 2012. And I had two things on my plate. One was some, this is before Medium and all that, but I wanted long form writing on the internet. I wanted more of that and something in education. And you might hear me talk crap about MOOCs a little bit. <laughs> it's, it's not fair, maybe, but <laughs> what they showed in things like Codecademy is before that time, if you wanted to do something in education, you, you had to be a sales company. Like your job was to convince districts and, and people who had purchasing decisions that your stuff was worth purchasing. And so it seemed like maybe now it was possible to build something where the students were the actual customers and it could be a company run by educators. So I was really, I had a handful of ideas I was working on in education. I was talking with different people. I'm friends with, I've known Heaton Shah, who at the time was CEO of Kissmetrics for a really long time. And he was like, hey, I know this guy, Sharif Pache, who's thinking about doing this. Blah, blah, blah. And he described that boot camp, which was one of the very close to something that was on that list of ideas in person, vocational training, help people transform their lives, give people access to dignified livelihoods, which mattered a lot to me. I came from a, yeah. my home county, Antrim County, Michigan. It's like between 10 and 15% unemployment. And it's standard rest belt story. But we met, we hit it off, and I came on board. You know, the early stages of a company are always amorphous. I was a co-founder. Sharif had sent out that Hacker News post maybe a week before we had met. 
So when I met Sharif, he had, I think, eight students ready to do this thing. And this thing was completely underspecified. The specification was like three sentences on Hacker News. Come to San Francisco. I'll teach you how to be a software engineer in, uh, I forget what the first cohort was, 10 weeks, nine weeks, eight weeks, something like that. If you don't get a job within some period of time, two months, three months, we'll give you all your money back. It was $8,000. That was it. You know, we've, we felt each other out. It was a good match. And, and a third person came on board as a co-founder, Dave Hoover, who wound up running Chicago for us. So it was the three of us. But it's the only thing I've worked on that really worked immediately. And it's, it's funny you bring up the Hacker News post, Jesse, because we've, for longtime listeners, this is one of the things that we dove into pretty deep in one of the earlier episodes uh, when we had Kush Patel on. And uh, Kush Patel... I believe was actually one of the students in this very first cohort. Uh, and uh, I actually have the Hacker News post pulled up right now. The title uh, was, there we go. I want to teach you web development in eight weeks for free. And this post went viral, went to the top of Hacker News and people couldn't get enough of it. And this post goes out, Sharif realized that there's, there's a demand for this new type of program that you guys are designing. Tell us what happens in this first cohort. How does everything unfold after this? Well, the, the first cohort, we used a lot of off-the-shelf curriculum. We actually, we were friends with Jeff Casimir, who now does Turing. But at the time, Turing School out in Colorado. But at the time, the, on, the only thing, there were two things that were similar to what we were doing. One was this more entrepreneurial-oriented program in Chicago called at the time it was called Code Academy, but they had to change their name to Starter League. And we know those guys, Dave knew those guys. But there was a much more focus on like, it's about learning enough code to build your MVP and less on securing immediate access to livelihoods. And then the other was this place called Hungry Academy being run out of Living Social, which was run by Jeff Casimir. And Hungry Academy, it's like what Amazon is doing now. It's essentially, it was essentially an internal retraining program. So they were actually the most similar, but obviously internal to Living Social, which if the audience doesn't remember, Living Social was a competitor Groupon, assuming they even know what Groupon is. I don't know. But so Jeff had some curriculum available that we borrowed and repurposed a bit to help run our first cohort. And I came on like, I forget, it was the middle of January of 2012. So I don't even know if the first cohort had started yet. It was just all fly by the seat of our pants, really. So we were making it up as we went along. Obviously, the people you attract for something like that, it's, it's complete wild west. Like who says yes to that kind of thing? <laughs> sure, it's for free, but you still have to put your life on hold. You move across the country, potentially. <laughs> Do these people even have any credibility? Lots of folks who went on to start other boot camps actually were in that in that program. And that's actually what I want to talk about next, Jesse. This, I mean, this, this first cohort was so transformational that it led to the birth of three major coding boot camps. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it gave birth to App Academy. It gave birth to Hackbrite Academy and then also Hack Reactor. Yep. Yeah. I will, you know, I won't, I won't say gave birth to, I don't take qualms with that probably, but yeah. So David was a student, David Phillips at Hackbright was a student in our first cohort. Christian, his co-founder, was a, was a part-time teacher with us. I mean, that tended to be the combination. It was like a staff member plus a student. <laughs> App Academy is the different one. So Kush, I forget his co-founder's name. And then Tony Phillips, who was the CEO of Hack Reactor eventually, was in our first cohort. And his brother, Marcus, for that whole first year, Tony actually worked for us for about a year after he graduated. And Marcus was, he was a uh, senior software engineer at Twitter or team lead or something like that. His brother, Marcus, who's an amazing teacher, was, did a lot of our JavaScript stuff at that bootcamp that first year and change. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I have to ask, what made you think, or what makes you think that all these other boot camps were founded from that first cohort? It's mind-boggling to think that if you actually look at the space now, like some of the top programs 
out there came from the first cohort of Dev Academy. Why do you think that happened? I, um, well, they, I mean, they all saw it working firsthand. They went through the experience themselves. And honestly, we didn't have a coherent way to fold them into any expansion plans. So certainly ha Hack Reactor, we had the option to make it part of Dev Bootcamp if we wanted. Like there were multiple points where most of the founding team wanted to come on board. And we, you know, in retrospect, it was obvious we should have found a way to make it happen. But when you're just starting out, it's like, what are you, wait, is this like a franchise thing? We had lots of programs approaching us. It's been so long now, I can't remember all their names, but almost, I would say, virtually every boot camp. At least a dozen boot camps started in that year, 2012, 2013, approached us first about being a franchisee. We were so far out ahead in terms of branding. We, we Kleenexed ourselves too. <laughs> you know, within less than a year, I'd, I'd be like, oh, yeah, I work at Dead Boot Camp. Oh, which one? God damn it. <laughs> right, that happened. I, I think I saw the tweet where you mentioned that, and I think it's absolutely hilarious, but it's crazy how instantaneous product market fit was. Because within a couple of years, you see coding boot camps erupt across the yep. country. Obviously, a lot of going on in Silicon Valley from the first cohort of that boot camp. But obviously, there's uh, David Yang, there's General Assembly, there's Full Stack Academy, yep. there's all these other programs emerging. Why do you think the timing was right for these types of programs? Honestly, I'm not sure. I, I will say General Assembly was around longer than us, but their core offering was more of a a night school type model. They only went into the intensive format. I forget when you'd have to look it up when their first intensive launched, but it was sometime in 20, it was six, eight, 12 months after we launched. Mm -hmm. So like General Assembly was already out there. They'd already raised a bunch of money from like largely from Avaron, who was also a major investor in Avaron. <laughs> um, and so just to, you know, I don't want to say like, oh, we were there before General Assembly. People get prickly about like who was first and who gets credit for what. And so I want to make sure I'm only speaking for the facts. But why then? I don't know. I think you can't tell a story. Maybe we can answer it by ruling stories out. The story isn't like MOOCs didn't work because we didn't know they didn't work yet. I think people who had robust theories of learning would have said, these are not actually replacements for classes. They're replacements for like a library card. But <laughs> like MOOCs were only a, as a category less than a year old, a year or two old. So it wasn't as if people were like, well, MOOCs didn't quite cut it for me. I'm going to try this more intensive thing. You know, I think it was people. We still weren't that far off from the crash in 2007, 2008. People, speaking as someone from the Midwest, people see the writing on the wall that it's things aren't looking good and the most the advantages of technology they wouldn't phrase it in these terms but they accrue to the people on the coasts that's where i was coming from um like people joke about or talk about rate of disruption or disintermediating this or that like hey my dad's tiny local booking agency was disintermediated by myspace <laughs> why well, i have a booking agent and it's, it's you know it's haha -ha, but it's also like Oh, that's 25 years of my life that is now deleted in a year. What do I do? 60. <laughs> so that's not. It's that. That's what was motivating it. And I think a lot of people saw that. A lot of people had come out of college, maybe whatever. I'm just speculating. <laughs> the answer is I can't put a finger on it. I can say what I noticed, which is what I said earlier. Namely, there were these things sprouting up that seemed to be working, which were focused on a learner, a, like an, a direct learning experience that the student could be the customer. So I had no idea it would, if, for, with Everland, we, it was like 18 months of not fun, <laughs> like of nothing working, of essentially having a list of 10 things we thought might work and just cr crossing everything off the list until the very last thing, which in some ways was the most obvious, but also felt like the most risky is what worked. Let's just make our own clothes and build our own brand. <laughs> and it wasn't like that with that boot camp at all. So the magnitude was totally unanticipated. I don't think any of us anticipated that. Yeah. 
I'd love to hear about those, that first cohort, you know, just what was your mindset, your all's mindset, right? There's three of you, there's a Hacker News Post, there's some people out in San Francisco. I know you had some sure. experience programming, but what, how did you guys think about actually building that first cohort, what students would go through, what did you draw on and how quickly did you guys iterate after the first round and how fast was your learning curve? Uh, it was fast. When you have a live in-person teaching environment like that, you, you're... The classroom is the lab. You have an idea for a piece of material and you test it out the next day or the same day. So there's this very tight, symbiotic, immediate relationship. Forget about the immediacy. You can say, hey, I'm on YouTube. I'm on Twitch. I get feedback right away. It's very different when you're trying to craft, you know, at Deb Bootcamp, the students come in with minimal prior experience. Eventually there was prep work, but the project for the end of the second week was like a Sudoku solver. And to get students to a place where they can do, like actually do that, actually reason about it, requires you to be really keyed into how exactly students understand things, how they get, what confuses them, why, so on and so forth. Something like that is very hard to triangulate towards with the long distance telemetry that we have when it's like Google Analytics or these course, fundamentally course metrics. And yeah, the learning curve was really steep. I mean, that first cohort, it was just, look, we just have to do everything within our power to ensure they get jobs if that's what they want. Most of them did. And that's really all that mattered. That was a singular focus. The, the difference is I and anyone who's learned from me or taught alongside me will know I have like zero tolerance for a teach to the test kind of attitude. Like, I do not care about doing it if it's like eight weeks of cracking a coding interview. Who gives a shit about that? That's not this. People will pay for it. Students will buy it. It will deliver the results it promises to deliver, but it feeds into a dynamic that I think is fundamentally toxic and I want it to go away. So I don't want to contribute to that. So we were very serious about like, yeah, fine, you know, active record, but no, you're going to know SQL too. You know, you're going to, anything you do with Twitter bootstrap, you should be able to do at least an approximation of it by hand, that, that kind of thing. And yeah, yeah so the, there was a big emphasis on the fundamentals like that. We revised a lot of the curriculum. The biggest change was between our first and second year where we switched to rolling cohorts. So it was like, it, it settled into a nine week program, the core of which, a nine week core with like six the amount of prep varied but there was like three to six before three to six after nine week core three three-week phases and so there were like three week starts so every three weeks there was a new cohort of 15 to 20 students entering the space and it was like a junior third a sophomore third and a senior third that was the biggest change in terms of how everything in the company worked but the first year it was like 10 weeks on 10 weeks off 10 weeks on 10 weeks off yeah 10 weeks on Lots of second system syndrome, like dramatic provisions that took a lot of time and effort and 80% of which were wasted effort that as soon as students interacted with it, we had to undo immediately. <laughs> really interesting. And yeah, it sounds like you went from that 10 on, 10 off to that real-time iteration where you're starting new cohorts as the other ones are still going. So you can actually turn around and, and add those lessons back in within just a matter of a couple of weeks. So I'm sure that really upped the rate of learning. Are there any particular mistakes you made or, or things you corrected with, you know, we thought this was the way to deliver, this was the way to get people motivated. It, it totally didn't work. And instead we did this and any like major lessons from those early days? Learning to rely more on the built environment. You know, if you're teaching something, in, this is how I feel a bit about cohort-based courses too. It's like you, you, it's, you have all these people together synchronously. And if you imagine your typical uninspiring college course, yes, it's happening, but no one's really taking advantage of it. And likewise with the built environment, they're not really taking advantage of it. It's just a place where chairs live. And so as an example, we had this whole help request system. I'll just talk about it because I, I also was like, the, how our technical team worked was not super traditional because teachers came and went in terms of contributions, but I was technically in charge of, like, I was like the CTO, but also the chief academic officer. But uh, this help request system and staff, it didn't take long. They, I felt like this because I was on the ground that first year all the time. 
and we joke i was like the flight attendant in chief you know ding dong and i just go over to wherever the whatever the queue said and staff invariably they were like hey i've worked a retail job before this feels like a retail job like i feel like i'm selling people pants and it sets this weird expectation and we kept on trying to build more and more complicated software to account for all the friction in this process and we wound up just deleting it all and replacing it with post-it notes on monitors so like if you wanted help you just put a post-it note up on your monitor <laughs> and it solves 90 percent of the problems like you do you want to know how many students are stuck you just look at the room okay you don't need some reporting thing you don't need to decide what metrics matter you just look at the room if a student feels like they're in urgent need of help right now they put their post-it note up and maybe they look around the room and see actually there's like a sea of post-it notes here of course they're going to be maybe take longer or maybe the person right next to me has we're working on the same thing i can see hey are you stuck on this da, da, da. and if you try to do that all in software you have to reinvent all these things that the built environment essentially gives you for three for free if you see it as a thing that intersects with the learning environment as opposed to just a place where chairs and computers live because we need chairs and computers. Yeah, having some depth to that actual space and using that, and yes. I'm sure especially in the early days when probably more manageable size, it, it just made a lot of sense to move to that. That's really interesting. Yeah, and Jesse, I want to real quick touch about touch on MOOCs because if Will and I have been doing a lot of history around online education all the way from 2004 up to where we are today. And right around the time when Dev Bootcamp starts, Stanford launches their kind of first ever MOOCs. And three of the professors from the computer science department at Stanford end up, you know, seeing the potential in this format and end up splitting off and starting their own companies, Udacity and Coursera. And so there's this while this kind of coding bootcamp revolution is starting off, MOOCs are also taking off in a big way. But it's interesting. They they take two completely different models. And one of them is still thriving and actually growing faster than ever before. And the other is, you know, it's not spoken of as much. And specifically, those are the MOOCs. And obviously, one thing that I'm hearing right now is it's the attention to the transformation and delivering impact for students that boot camps really nailed. But what are the other things that MOOCs miss the mark on? Um, I, well, in terms of outputs, I would agree. But the question is, I think it boils down to this, like, are you thinking about what are the actual irreducible constituents of a learning experience? Or are you thinking about, by golly, if this works, we could service a billion people. And one frame of mind, I'm not saying it makes you think these thoughts, but it does nothing to disavow you of these thoughts. And it does everything to whisper these thoughts into your mind. And the main one is that teachers are an impediment to scale, that they are expensive, fleshy textbooks. And one day they will be replaced by a clean, you know, what is a teacher except a complicated machine that knows when to deliver the right information? Well, enough biometric and psychometric and whatever metric data, bye bye. But I, I think there's actually one that is a I'm intentionally framing it in an extreme way. I don't think anyone who runs a MOOC would say that about teachers. I think some people who invest in MOOCs might, but I don't think the people running the MOOCs themselves would. And like, come on, the, the variable cost of having a teaching staff is huge. And if instead in your theory of learning, there's something irreducible about the teacher-student relationship, you start from a place where it's like, what is that actually about? What is going on there? Why does it seem to recur over and over again in the, in the world? And with some understanding of that, you know, we take that as a fixed thing. That's really more of where we were coming from. Like MOOCs aren't a replacement for a course. Like people don't go to MIT because they have the best textbooks. They don't even go to MIT necessarily. Some people do. And most people, I went to the University of Chicago. And since I graduated, Chicago has gotten way more selective as a means to 
shoot up the US News and World Report ranks. But the year I was admitted, their admission rate was something like 40%, which is, you know, for comparison, it's like 3% now, which is equivalent to most like, Ivy League schools. And that's intentional. But <laughs> my point is, you know, Chicago is filled with people for whom Chicago was their second choice, which drove me nuts because it was like my dream. And, uh, you know, for them, it was like, oh, I, I want the degree that confers the most value per tuition dollar or something like that. So some people do go to MIT for that, but I think a lot of people don't. It's like, I want an amazing technical education. And the things that feed into that aren't just the best lectures by the best people. It's like mentorship, it's community, it's, it's the way, if you know your teacher has your back in a real way, you fundamentally relate to and digest the material in a different way. And I think if it's just about one single student, or even a small number of students, if you're trying to facilitate a transformation, relying on that, whatever you want to call it, social aspect, relational aspect, to get that transformation done is a lot easier than like engineering the best content, the right explanations, the best metaphors, the so it's pretty brittle anyhow, past a certain point, it's they're diminishing returns to um the learning afforded by refining content, I would say. Yeah. And, and Jesse, one of the reasons that the bootcamp space excites me so much is I really do believe it represents a new era for education. We've always been of this mindset that, hey, you go to school from the ages of 18 to 22, and that is enough education for the entirety of your career. Now, we talked about why it was 2011 for mm -hmm. all these kind of transformations in terms of education, bootcamps, MOOCs, online courses. I think a part of it is that the internet had reached a point where we industry started evolving really quickly, yep. even more so now, 10 years later, <laughs> where most of what you've learned becomes completely irrelevant so quickly. And so yep. this idea of like, ed, you know, it's education is a one and done thing. I think in just about less than maybe five, 10, 20 years, we're going to look back and we're going to laugh at the notion of that because I don't think how that's how the majority of people are going to learn. I think everybody will need to reskill and upskill continually throughout their career to be able to perform at the highest level whether that it's is in the form of boot camps or it's in the form of cohort based courses which is a big movement that we're seeing right now yep. the way i've categorized boot camps versus cohort based courses is i've really found that boot camps have been traditionally great for reskilling so when the economy takes a downturn or you get to a point where you know you've discovered that the career that you have is not the career you want. Boot camps are a great way to catapult you into a different career path. You can do that very efficiently. You can learn really modern, relevant skills from the industry experts in months, not years, for a fraction of the cost. And then cohort-based courses, where I think they're providing a lot of value, is helping people do do what they're doing currently better. So I think they're doing a lot of value in terms of mm -hmm. upskilling. I would love to hear your thoughts around this transition that we're seeing in the online education space and cohort-based courses and your thoughts about them. Well, I agree. I agree with that premise. We talked about it all the time, eight, nine years ago, even where if you are living in a world of accelerating change, any kind of fixed curriculum gets outdated. Or teaching technology skills too. So that's already given. Are you running an Angular bootcamp? Uh-oh. So it has to be about at some level, yes, you need specific skills because the students are going to go out and get a job and they have to interview for a specific thing. And in any case, you can't teach like a general concept without it being instantiated in at least one concrete context. Like you can't, I think, and there's research to back it up. You can't teach just critical thinking skills. Like you learn critical thinking skills by reflecting on actually critically thinking about some specific thing and having your attention drawn to the moments where those skills are being applied and then you try and apply that to a different situation but so it's like fundamentals but also metacognitive skills social emotional learning those sorts of things and those are big features of debut camp we had engineering empathy every wednesday you know we had students we had we i chuckle a bit this is one area where i'll pat my pat our back I forget where I read it, but I remember once, here's the difference between, well, I'll just say it. Like that bootcamp had, 
on-site full-time counselors from day one for students, like therapists and counselors on staff, full-time, go see them anytime. None of this like, you have a $50, $100 credit for some mobile therapist app because we know it's stressful. Like, that's the kind of thing, if you're really looking to How can I say it? The way I think about it is there are certain constraints you put on a learning experience, duration, opportunity cost, cost, subject matter, student-teacher ratio, in-person, remote, blah, blah, blah. And the fundamental principles of how you design a learning experience don't really change from context to context, but they play out in different ways. So it is, you can kind of section these you can bucket these constraints together however you want and call one boot camps and call another cohort-based course. And it's a useful label. I don't know that they're fundamentally different. I think the same principles apply. They're, as an economy, they pull in people motivated by different things. And so different courses get built. Someone who's like, I'm a big time YouTube creator and i want a more premium experience or i want to develop a richer connection with my audience like that input to the system is going to create its own flavor of courses and then we're going to put a label on them we're going to call them cohort based courses or whatever certainly you know i think about things like thinkful or block or anything like that are they a boot camp are they a cohort based course I don't know. It's just for me, it's more what's actually happening with the student. What are the constraints? What are their expectations? Are they being met? And are they getting good value for their money? And then the teacher side of me is, well, that's not enough. <laughs> the student has to say, I thought I understood what a powerful learning experience was until now. That's a bar for me and the things I try to do. And we pulled it off with surprising consistency at Dead Bootcamp and some of the other things I've been involved with. Like my co-founder Sharif is an amazing facilitator. He's one of the best facilitators I've ever seen. I learned so much <laughs> about successful group facilitation from him. And that's really, even a good classroom teacher might underestimate the kind of art of group facilitation insofar as they see their job as like for a lot of classroom teachers understandably facilitation intersects very strongly with the need for certain levels of classroom control and so it comes with a very different flavor but if you're building it from scratch you can from day one just say you're entering a new ecosystem and we're helping you become a whole different species that's the attitude we took if that makes sense. So I do agree that like for boot camps, I think boot camps are best at that transformational thing that like you're a train on one track and you're being heli lifted to another train track. I think that's very hard to do with something that isn't bookended and extremely intense. If it's a part-time thing, you, you, to get a phase change, it's not enough to have like you add a little bit of heat every day because the heat dissipates before you get the phase change. So I think if it's like, yeah, we're looking to have that kind of wholesale life end to end life type transformation, it's very challenging to do it. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's challenging to do it without a bootcamp type format. And likewise, the opportunity cost of that is huge. What do you do for people who want material change in your life, but can't put their life on hold? And then you have other formats that's how i was long-winded i apologize but that's how i that's how i that's the way my mind plays over those distinctions yeah no that's interesting i think you're right you know to go from zero to 60 in terms of being a programmer or software developer if you have no experience it certainly seems like you would need that extreme nine-week end-to-end full-time experience what's i find interesting about your answer is that you know, I help run a cohort-based course that helps people to write and write online. And it's not full-time, it's five weeks, it's, it's part-time, but we do make it very intense. So it's a slightly different degree, but it's the same concept where 
it, we talk about phase change. We talk about, you know, you will walk away from this course five weeks from now different than where you started. By design, very intense. Some people say, hey, this is so much. Can't you spread it out over 10, 12 no. weeks? Like, no, no, this is by design. It is, it is, you know, we call it rite of passage. There's sort of double meaning there. And it's meant to be through the fire and come out the other side. And it works. We get feedback from people. It really seems to work. So yep. again, that's more upskilling than a completely different, you know, career yeah. transition. But I, I noticed that same principle there. Yeah, you can do it. We, I, this last two years, I've been working with a startup at Jason Academies and we are just... <laughs> COVID thing is really complicated now, but originally it was conceived of as a study abroad program for liberal arts college students in Silicon Valley. So they would, they basically decamp for a semester, get full credit, four courses, three of which I taught, and I did that boot camp for them for a semester. But we did some in the summer too that were remote and only four weeks long. And same kind of intensity we expect from them. And do you get, it's to me, it's just like, look, if it's, it's, it's funny, the only metaphor I can think of is like in online advertising when you talk of share a voice mm. right now, but it's like if you have 100% of the students share a voice, like all of their time and attention and spread that out over some amount of time, like what can you do with that is sort of how I see it. Like what the constraints offer up the raw material and then it's up to you as the learning designer to go, well, okay, what can I do with that? If I have, and you're right, it's, you know, quantity, as a quality all of its own. That's something people don't, well, I think more and more, this is part of what I had mentioned in an email. A lot of what I hear in the cohort-based core, there, <laughs> there are lots of other bootcamp instructors who I talk to who, even though we didn't have a lot of contact while we were both working in the space, thoughtful people focusing on a similar problem will converge to similar solutions. It's a it's convergent evolution. So. At some level, it's just good, good teaching, and that's like every football coach knows that. <laughs> you know what I mean? as they say. And then within those, you know, whatever the duration is, and if it's full time or part time, but it's an mm -hmm. intense, you know, sprint. There are certain techniques you can use to get more out of the students and make the learning experience more rich. And you've talked about the uh, environment. So it's something we, we touched on, we can come back to, but I actually want sure. to start with this idea of impasse driven sure. learning. I found this really interesting and I'm going to try to talk it back to you and then. Yeah, absolutely. But my understanding of impasse driven learning is that, so the best learning comes from experience. So rather than just trying to transmit the information that one a teacher has learned from experience, you try to induce a challenge, an impasse for a student who then has to overcome that challenge, that impasse, and then they get the experience themselves. And so it might be harder at first or seem like a slower way at the beginning, but when they break through the insights are deeper, you internalize it better, and then it actually accelerates your rate of learning beyond that impasse. Do I have that right? And then any gaps you fill in or any context you give? It's a really interesting concept I hadn't heard defined before. Uh, yeah. I would go farther. I would say all learning comes from experience. Mm -hmm. And see, like, here's, you don't believe me on my book here, have a copy. John Dewey, Experience in Education. Yeah. <laughs> but I think all, like, listening to a teacher try to explain to you how to solve a quadratic formula is an experience. You are learning something from it. Not sure. all of what you're learning is educative. You're maybe learning how to internalize your boredom, you're learning how to whatever, right? There's lots of things you learn from that experience. So the question is just sort of what are you noticing and how are you making sense of what you notice? What abstractions are you forming in your mind and what habits are you building as a result? Like if the habit you build is as soon as I think I'm entering a lecture, stare out the window and think about something more enjoyable, that's not a good habit. And, but that is the lesson that experience is teaching you. And the instructor would be well to understand that despite their best intentions, that is in fact the lesson they're teaching. And so impasses are one of the easiest ways to focus people's attention exactly where and how you want it. And a, a silly example, but I think lots of people know it. It's talked about in like design of everyday things, but you're, you're going to work for the 772nd day in a row and there's a door and you reach for the handle and you go to pull it and it doesn't move and you look down and you see a sign that says push. So that's like an impasse and it, it like woke you up, you're paying attention, you're making sense of the situation afresh, a little bit afresh and you learn something. 
in this case, a small detail about your environment. Oh, they changed how this door works or whatever. And a lot of, uh, to give a very specific example, this we would do this later in the program at like Dev Boot Camp. You know, students, they almost always work in pairs and they would maybe three-day project, build a stack overflow clone. It's specced out for them a little bit more than that. But halfway through, we wouldn't tell them beforehand. We would say like, okay, you need to finish this project, but you're going to finish it using another Pierce code base. And they go, you never told me someone else would be looking at my code. <laughs> okay. They do it. They get upset at the other pair for all the terrible decisions they've made. Oh, why'd you name it like this? Why'd you structure it like that? But this is where the intensive aspect plays into it because these are people they already have relationships with. They've already worked with. The psychological distance there is very close. Whatever frustrations they feel are being projected onto them, they realize it's symmetrical. They're projecting it onto this other pair. And that moment is worth hundreds of lecture hours about the principles of structuring your code and naming your variables for the purpose of readability and comprehensibility of other people. You do in half a day what you could just spend hours and hours making content after content of the, the, the 732 rules of how to name variables. And the twisted thing is the students are happy to commit that kind of stuff to memory. This is why I, as a teacher, people sometimes are surprised. I don't, if students reach for index cards or spaced repetition or that kind of stuff, I, I have confiscated that from students. <laughs> if I see them trying to memorize that stuff, I will grab their flashcards from their hands and be like, you are not allowed to do this yet. And Jesse, it's one of the things that you're hinting at right now, which is the reason that I admire Bootcamp so much is how much they've found a way to emulate the actual industry. So, yeah. so much of the right now in classrooms, it's all these hypotheticals. It's, I, there's another point we can make about how professors are academics who really are the sure. wrong people to be teaching this content to begin with. That's a different point. I think the bigger problem is that the way that you're basically taught the material is in a way that just doesn't translate to career. Like when you get, when you start working, you know, most colleges don't teach you GitHub or source control or right. making a PR, but most boot camps do. They're, they do a great job of making sure that career readiness is not something that's an afterthought. Sure. It's core to the actual curriculum. I would, it's, it's interesting. That's a good example. I think there's something in a lot of even online learning experiences when you hear people talk about it. It's, I don't know, I don't help me come up with a name for it, but it's something, it's like table of content itis. Where, of course, it's natural when you're thinking about what to teach, you like list, list all of the, the, the concepts you need to teach and the major hurdles and the blah, 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 organizes a table of contents. But that's not really how people learn. And teaching Git, for example, it's natural to go, well, when do we learn Git? What day do we learn Git? When, what week do we cover Git? When do we cover it? When does it start? When does it begin? And it's sectioned like that. And that's a common thread in both environments, I think, and is a bit of the root of that problem when it should be more like, when do we start practicing it? And if you get students to start practicing it right away, something like Git, there are ways to get at it conceptually, but a lot of it is just the automaticity of knowing the commands and having a sense of what these commands are supposed to do. And you get them, you bootstrap them into a, like a competent enough state of, like they have to be able to use it well enough to get feedback on it basically. And, and you just get them to that point as quickly as you can. Even if 80% of the way they're using it, if an expert looked at it, they would be like, oh my God, these, their commit messages stink. They're not actually, their commits aren't logical, blah, blah, blah. And it's really hard for people designing curriculum it honestly, look, let's talk about John Dewey experience in education. This was written like almost 100 years ago now. In it, he says the problem, a core problem and core impediment to adopting a more progressive mode of education is a lack of a theory of a progressive theory of how to organize a curriculum. How do you do that? I don't know. I don't know. I don't have a systematic answer to it, but it's something like that. It's like you're going to be practicing Git forever. The question is, when do you start? And certain things that pay dividends, you want to start sooner rather than later. And yes, it can be motivated by career preparedness, but it doesn't have to. It can be motivated by 
for example, a desire to induct students into the broader community in which this craft is an offshoot. And you're going to be reading tutorials about Git. You're going to be talking to people. They're going to say the word Git. You're going to have conversations about it. They might want to share some code with you and it might point you at a Git repo. And by not focusing on that, you are unintentionally closing off a whole universe of social reality and feedback from these students because they can't talk get ease you know yeah but so the career part is also part of that sort of broader community of which this craft is an offshoot but it's more i think it's just a sort of it's much broader than that and it has to do with this the way we think about organizing and presenting material in this sort of module unit centric view which i think MOOCs it's really hard to do a MOOC without thinking of it in those terms which makes creating transformational experiences all the more harder for them i would say if i were to abstract the principle from that it's the we have this inclination to deliver things in a module centric view or like you said table of contents itis but really it's that's focusing maybe too much on the information transmission or these very right. units of information that you can transmit to somebody versus the getting your hands dirty as a student grappling with it yourself and actually internalizing those lessons yourself um i guess i, I know we're uh, coming up on time here but the final question for me would just be about uh just principles of learning design that you developed i mean you shared one or perhaps a couple just now but any others or any just sort of takeaway principles of what it takes to design effective learning experience, excuse me, what it takes to design an effective learning experience, I'd be very interested. I think the audience would be too. Yeah, I think, look, this it's tricky because, you know, abstract principles, they sound great, but maybe you're hard to connect. I would say this is related to the impasse driven thing because Students know when they make a, when something is blocking their way. And so if you can think about, instead of thinking about what concepts you want to cover, mm. think about maybe what mistakes you want students to be making. Be because it's similar to like in the philosophy of science, you have verificationism and falsificationism as a sort of dichotomy. And you, <laughs> if a student says and does all the right things, like you will never see me more skeptical of a student as when they give me a perfect answer. It's like, I know you're confused about something, but you're talking to me in a way that makes it impossible for me to tell what you're confused about. Like, how is your curriculum, your built environment, your social environment, your culture of feedback, da 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 da? How is it offering up? making it obvious when students are confused and making it as easy as possible to come to a diagnosis and uh, a healthy productive resolution. And this is where if you have your own curriculum, this is where this is very hard for a, a normal classroom, traditional classroom where you don't have a ton of control over the curriculum. But at Dev Bootcamp and Code Union and Mission Bit and all, whatever other places I've done stuff, it's like, I can tell you that on the third day of the second week the students are going to start you'll start seeing it in most of the students where they write functions that have more than four or five positional arguments which means they won't remember like which one is argument four and which one is argument five and that's a mistake now that they're making it you can intervene you can have a lecture about other ways of writing functions that don't fall into this trap where you basically your working memory is not like you're not going to remember a week from now wh which argument is number four and which argument is number five how do you create that moment for students so organizing it around mistakes i think is one way the other and i'll keep this one super brief is like look to history Okay, like every abstraction concept tool technology, whoever's mind it first found form and it felt like the most natural thing in the world. And if you can recreate the environment, the conditions of invention for the student, 
they'll have a decent shot at coming up with an own version of it them themselves. At which point, by the way, a lecture is going to be highly effective. If you have students build complex enough web applications using jQuery that they create what's called jQuery soup, and you do that three or four times, and they maybe even start to build their own little mini frameworks and libraries, and then you introduce React, they pick it up right away. It seems like the most obvious thing in the world. Why didn't you show this to me sooner, they'll yell at you. Well, because if I showed it to you sooner, it wouldn't have made any sense. And you'd be talking about why is this complicated thing do this thing in this complicated way. And it's because it's unmotivated. But even if I told you how it was motivated, it wouldn't really be motivating to you. I have to put you, I have to get you to experience the frustration that, that, that caused this thing to be invented in the first place. And history is a great source of that. Like, why was React invented? What was going on in the minds of people that when React came about? And it's true for every... I'm using tech as an example, but I can draw examples from lots of other places too. So look at history, see what, try to recreate some of those environments in your curriculum, scope to the student understanding. It shouldn't be, you know, some scientific experiment in the 19th century. Maybe they had to grind their own lenses. Okay. I'm not saying grind your own lenses here. You can provide the lenses for the student. That's okay. But that's, those are the sort of the two the two big things is like thinking about the actual historical development of the field as a source and thinking about what are the mistakes that can act as milestones rather than the accomplishments necessarily. The accomplishments need to be there too, but that's how you know. Make better mistakes tomorrow. <laughs> I say that to the students all the time. What was that? Make better mistakes tomorrow. Love it. Love it. Well, Jesse, this conversation was absolutely fascinating. We're a little bit over time, so <laughs> we're going to wrap up now. That being said, do you have any last minute plugs in terms of how our audience can learn more about what you're up to and keep up with you on social media? Sure. Right now, I'm mostly active on Twitter. You can follow me, Jay Farmer. I tweet about this stuff. Twitter forces me to be more succinct. <laughs> but... That's where I'm mostly active now. GitHub too, github.com slash jfarmer. You can see some of the curriculum we've been using at Adjacent. It's all open source. And those are the two main places. You can email me, jesse at 20bits.com, 20bits.com. I, re I regret that domain a little bit, but I've had it for 15 years. I have to say it like that every time. 20bits.com. So feel free to email me. jfarmer, get Twitter, jesse at 20bits.com. Would love to chat. Amazing. Well, Jesse, thanks so much for coming on. This was a blast. It's a pleasure. And that was Jesse Farmer of Dev Bootcamp. If you want to keep up with Jesse, be sure to give him a follow on Twitter at jfarmer. And if you want to keep up with what Will and I are up to, you can head over to tryvirtually.com or fortelabs.co. If you enjoyed that episode, Will and I would love for you to leave a review and a subscribe on your favorite podcast player. It really helps get the word out. If you want to keep up when new episodes drop, head on over to reshapingeducationpodcast.com or give Will and I a follow on Twitter. All the links will be in the show notes. With that, this is Ish and Will signing off. <laughs>